We live in an anxious world. Our lives are filled with all kinds of different stressors. The American Psychiatric Association uh, conducts an annual poll where they survey different causes of anxiety. And over the last two years, uh, they've seen a quite serious uptick of cause, different causes of anxiety. Anxiety has plagued the American mind. The most recent stress inducers in their findings have been things like inflation, gas prices, the Russian-Ukraine war, our children's social and academic development, just to name a few. And these sources of anxiety, they weigh heavily upon us. We often feel as though the weight of the world is bearing down upon us. And the church is not immune to anxiety. Those of us who trust in God might be wondering, what is God doing? We know that he is sovereign, that his will is perfect for our lives, but sometimes it seems like God might not be answering our prayers. How do we deal with our anxieties? How do we deal with the stress of rising gas prices? How do we cast our everyday cares upon the Lord? Well, I hope to begin to answer these questions this evening as we turn our attention to God's word. We'll be looking at Psalm 131, a psalm that has been regarded by some as a jewel of simplicity. And this psalm is the third shortest psalm in the Bible, but it packs a powerful punch in three short verses. It answers for us the question of how we deal with our anxieties. But in many ways, it goes much deeper than that. This psalm not only teaches us how to deal with stress in our lives, but also how to direct our hearts, our thoughts, our minds, our souls. This psalm is a paradigm for us of humble reliance. It teaches us to move beyond simply coping with everyday anxieties to moving to to putting everything at the foot of the cross. This psalm of David, it's it's not a self-help psalm. It is the prayer of the righteous who models for us total dependence upon Yahweh. It's the psalm of David, a man who was acutely aware of his need and depravity. And this evening we'll see how this psalm demonstrates the heart posture of a Christian in whatever trial they are facing in three key ways. Firstly, a humble heart. Secondly, a childlike faith. And thirdly, an everlasting hope. If you are feeling weary and crushed by the bread of anxious toil this evening, this psalm is for you. God's word speaks to every area of our lives. And it's my prayer that as we examine Psalm 131 this evening, that we would be humbled that our faith would be like that of a child and that our hope would be in God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Now, before we dive into our text, I just wanna make a few brief comments about the nature of the Psalms. Uh, I believe that this will be fruitful for us as we seek to understand the place of the Psalms within the life of the believer. 
The Psalms are both the songbook and the prayer book of the church. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in ancient Israel, Psalms were sung as part of corporate worship. Many of these songs were actually the prayers of the saints. In one sense, you actually could say that the Psalms are a dialogue of sorts. In the Psalms, we have the voice of the saints crying out to God. We have psalms of praise, psalms of lament, psalms of judgment, psalms of God's salvation, psalms about God's law. But what is striking, I think, for us this evening is that the psalms are divinely inspired words. What this means is that in the psalms, we find God-ordained words to both sing and to pray. In the Psalms, we find how we are to worship and to praise. And God has given us all kinds of words and emotions in the Psalms to pour out our hearts to him. The Psalms don't shy away from difficult subjects. In Psalm 88, for example, the psalmist cries out to the Lord, why do you hide your face from me? Now we might hear this and think, you know, this is a little impious. How could, you, how could you say this to God? Or in Psalm 137, we read of how the psalmist actually prays for the destruction of the children of God's enemies. And we might think to ourselves, how could someone pray that, let alone sing that? These are just a few examples of the depths that the psalms plumb for us. The psalms teach us that we are to pour out our hearts to God who hears our every groan. Our prayers and our songs are enriched by the Psalms. They provide a template for us. They are part of our liturgical formation, you might say. They're a rich paradigm by which we can model our prayers. St. Augustine puts it like this. If the Psalm prays, you pray. If the psalm laments, you lament. If the psalm exalts, you rejoice. If it hopes, you hope. If it fears, you fear. Everything written here is a mirror for us. Now the psalms are also Christ-centered. Christ even prays a portion of Psalm 22 on the cross. Many other psalms prophesy about Jesus and are actually to be interpreted about Jesus. For example, we see this in Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2, where the words of the psalmist are actually identified as speaking about Christ, quoting from Psalm 110, or Psalm 8, or Psalm 22, as I mentioned. Now the point is this, the psalms are divinely inspired songs and prayers given to us, the church, as a way for us to speak to God. When we're overwhelmed and we feel like we don't know how to pray or even what to say, open your Bible and pray a psalm. Pray in the voice of the psalmist who casts all his joys and sorrows upon the Lord. We can pray using the words that God has given us. How long, O Lord? Let's turn now and look at Psalm 131 in more detail. Verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. 
I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. David begins this prayer with a humble heart. And this is the first movement of the heart of the righteous, humility. One of the things that I want you to notice is that David begins his prayer in verse 1 and ends it in verse 3 with the name of the Lord, Yahweh. That's italicized in our Bibles for us there. This is the holy name of our covenant God, the name that was revealed to Moses in the burning bush, the I am that I am, the name that was so holy that the Jews didn't, didn't even dare to say it out loud. I think this is vital for us to notice. When we pray to God, how often are we so quick to start with our wants and our needs without first praising God? Even our Lord taught us to pray beginning with our Father and ending with thine is the kingdom. In other words, the prayer of David is fully oriented towards God from the beginning to the end. When David begins in verse one, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. We see David humbling himself before the Lord. Now the Hebrew word for heart there, it refers to the seat of human intelligence. In other words, in verse one, the heart refers to our minds. David is saying that he's not puffed up. He doesn't think more of himself than he should. And David's eyes are not lifted too high. It refers to his outward demeanor. In verse one, David is essentially actually contrasting his heart with that of the wicked. In Proverbs chapter 21, verse four, uh, we read of this very heart of the wicked that is being contrasted here for us. I'll read that for you. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. Now the word for haughty there in the Hebrew, in Proverbs 21, verse four, it's actually the same word uh, that David prays in Psalm 131, verse one. So we could actually translate David in Psalm 131 verse 1 as saying, my eyes are not haughty. David is praying against haughty eyes. He's pleading for a humble heart. Bertrand Russell was a famous British philosopher of the 20th century and a staunch staunch atheist. Someone once asked him after one of his lectures what he would say to God if God turned out to be real and he had to stand before the judgment seat. Russell replied that he would say to God, I'm terribly sorry, but you didn't give us enough evidence. This is the spirit of a haughty eyes and a proud heart that we are actually to think of when David prays against a prideful heart. A heart that brazenly rejects God. David recognizes that there are only two ways. There is the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. This is foundational actually from the outset of the Psalms. We see this explicitly contrasted for us in Psalm 1. And we know in the New Testament that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4, verse 6. 
May we, like David, pray and ask God for a spirit of humility. In the second half of verse one, David really begins to unpack what it means to have a humble heart. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. It's interesting how David puts this. What are these things that are too great and too marvelous? Well, this is actually a divine reference. Uh, In Psalm 86, verse 10, we read, For you are great, and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Or in Psalm 136, verse 4, we read of God, To him alone who does great wonders. Or even Psalm 145, verses 4 and 5, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. You see, David is talking about God. When David says he does not occupy himself with things that are too great and too marvelous for him, he is saying that he is leaving the things of God to God. How often do we constantly try to control our lives? We yearn for control. We want to be in charge. But David is saying, no, God, you are in charge. Your timing is not my timing. To use the language of Isaiah 55, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and God's ways are not our ways. My wife and I are expecting our daughter here in about two weeks, and we're really excited to meet her. And one of the things they tell you is that you got to make sure that you have the hospital bag packed and ready to go well in advance in case, you know, the baby comes when you're not expecting it. And of course, with our first child, we had the hospital bag packed and ready to go about two months in advance. It was packed with, you know, all kinds of snacks, comfy pajamas, my wife's Kindle reader. I mean, we were, we were packed like we were going on some kind of Caribbean cruise or something like that. Little did we know. Uh, but anyways, as I said, we're expecting our daughter in about two weeks and we still haven't packed the bag yet. And maybe it's because we've just been busy or we've realized, you know, last time we, we overpacked, but my wife keeps feeling... Uh, anxious about the fact that we haven't packed the bag yet. And I have to remind her, God's timing is not our timing. No, but we will really get the bag packed soon. Uh, But I, I want you to consider this. I want you to consider this. When we occupy our thoughts with things that are too great, too marvelous for us, that is the things of God, the things which we cannot control, we get anxious. If we're honest with ourselves, we often feel overwhelmed because we want to control how everything pans out in our lives. We don't like surprises. We want absolute and total control. And David says that that control is just an illusion. We live and move and have our being in God. God is completely in control. And this is what a humble heart recognizes. We are not in charge. 
God ordains all things that come to pass according to his perfect will. Without his sovereign decree, we're we're told that not even a hair can fall from our head. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Now, I want to make one final comment on verse 1, and I think you'll find this quite fascinating. David says, I do not occupy myself. Now, the Hebrew word for occupy, okay, I think it really gives us a deeper insight here. The word literally means walk. I do not walk in things that are too great and too marvelous for me. You see, David is getting at the repetitive nature of our thoughts. We are creatures of habit. Now, I'm no neurologist, but God has made our brain chemistry in such a way that the more we do something, the more that behavior is reinforced. Uh, I've often heard it described like this. If you walk through a cornfield once, you make a path by repeatedly stepping on the corn stalks. But after only one journey, right, those corn stalks can rebound and the field was like it originally was, untouched. But the more you walk down that same path, the more you're walking over the same corn stalks time and time again, you, you begin to really clear a path for yourself. And this is actually how our neurological pathways function, the way that God has wired us. Our brain chemistry reveals God's natural law. The more that we think or do something, the more that that behavior becomes reinforced for us. The more we walk down the same path, the more our brains become wired to walk down that path again. And of course, we know this intuitively, right? This is why habits are incredibly difficult to break. David is essentially saying that he doesn't walk in things that are too great or too marvelous for him. He doesn't continually dwell in things that he can't control, but he surrenders his heart to God because he knows that God is in control. I think we can really gain something from this. When we obsess over things that are outside of our control, right? It it gives us anxiety. If we're constantly mulling over the different stressors in our day-to-day life, we'll spiral out of control. It's emotionally taxing. It drains us. It's mentally exhausting. If we're glued to our TV screens, or if we're glued to our TV screens or to our iPhones, and we're constantly worried about the course of this world, will eventually crash and burn. God is infinite and all-knowing. His power is vast, and he is everywhere present. He sees all things, and nothing outside is outside of his control. We are not God. We are his finite creatures. He holds us in the palm of his hands, and there's a real comfort in, there, in this, is there not? A humble heart that surrenders to God is one that acquires a peace that surpasses all understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. 
The second movement of Psalm 131 comes in verse 2. A childlike faith. David's heart is not lifted up. His eyes are not haughty. He does not occupy his thoughts or constantly walk in things that are too great and marvelous for him. But, says David, I have calmed and quieted my soul, verse 2. David is making a contrast here for us. He's made three negations in verse 1. He's saying he is not like the haughty and the proud who sinfully boast in their own doing. And then David moves us in verse 2 to see, okay, this is how I am to live. In the beginning of verse 2, David says he has calmed and quieted his soul. And, And this is significant for a number of reasons, both theologically and anthropologically. In a way, right, David is speaking to himself here, to his soul. And this is actually not out of the ordinary for the Psalms. For example, in Psalm 42, verse 5, we read the psalmist actually talking to his soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is spiritual self-talk, if you will. It's like the halftime pep talk, except you're talking to yourself. Now, when the Bible uses the word soul here, it refers to our whole being, our very existence. The word soul in the Bible, it doesn't convey this platonic idea that, you know, our souls are good and our bodies are bad. No, the biblical framework for our soul is that we are actually embodied beings. This is why Jesus' physical resurrection is important for us. He is the firstborn from the dead. We too will experience a physical resurrection of both body and soul. And so when David speaks of his soul, when he's addressing his own soul here, he's addressing his life and being. And that life and being finds its soul location in God alone. And look at this analogy that he uses to describe the character of his soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me, verse two. It's a profound analogy. This is very moving, powerful imagery here for us. Now there's some uh, debate about the reference here to the weaned child, what this uh, actually means. Some commentators take this to refer to a child that is no longer feeding from its mother's breast, a child that no longer screams when it wants milk because it has learned to trust that its mother will provide for it. And others suggest the opposite, uh, that this weaned child, that it refers to a child that is still nursing at its mother's breast and is thus, you know, quiet and calm after a feeding. Now, I think you could make a case here for uh, either interpretation, but the idea of a young child that is satisfied in its mother's provision, it's still conveyed here, a child that trusts wholeheartedly in the care of its mother. Children are really the best teachers. 
Recently, I've been playing this little game with my son where he stands up on the couch uh, and I'm sitting on the floor with my arms out and he runs and jumps off the edge of the couch and I catch him. And when we first started playing this game, he was a little skeptical. You could see a little twinkle of hesitancy in his eyes before he would jump. You know, are you really going to catch me, Dad? Are you sure? But after we'd done it a few times, Lyle got the hang of it and he started running into my arms full tilt without even second guessing himself. And this is the kind of faith, right, that, that a child places in a parent. A child learns to trust their mother and their father with such a deep faith. It's a huge responsibility. And this is what our Lord is getting at when he describes this kind of faith in Mark chapter 10, verse 15, when he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. A childlike faith is one that is entirely dependent on God for his provision of all things. You know, as teenagers and adults, we, we start to develop skepticism. It becomes hard for us to trust. We often close ourselves off to other people even because perhaps, of, perhaps we've had some bad experience. But you know, the beauty of trusting God like a wean child is that we know that he'll never let us down. He'll never forsake us. He is with us until the end of the age. And when we put our trust in people, our spouses, our institutions, our governments, we're always going to be disappointed, aren't we? We're going to be let down because that's the world we live in. That's the reality of human sin. But when it comes to the Lord, truly we do have a friend of sinners in whom we can depend and trust with absolute certainty, like that of a child trusting its parent. We serve a God in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God's promises are sure. God is, his, God is our father and we are his children. And the Bible speaks of God as a loving parent quite frequently. We see this in Hosea chapter 11, verses three and four. God speaking about Israel. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. And in Isaiah 49, verse 15, God's care is described like that of a mother. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God cares for you and me. His love is vast beyond all measure. And this is how you begin to calm and quiet your soul, as David describes. You remind yourself that God is for you. Who can stand against you? We must take care to remind our souls, to speak to our souls, and trust in God like a weaned child 
like a weaned child who is fully satisfied and depends on its mother for all that it needs. The confidence that we can have as believers is like that described in Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. Jesus has just finished teaching his disciples the Lord's prayer. And then he says this, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God, our father, does not provoke us to wrath. While our earthly fathers may fail us at times or have already failed us, our heavenly father cannot fail us. My prayer is that you would find great comfort in this. Let's look now at verse three and find where David places his everlasting hope, which is, of course, for us, our everlasting hope as well. Verse three. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David has humbled his heart. He has quieted his soul like a weaned child. And now he moves from an individual prayer to really a corporate prayer. He now extends his prayer to encompass all of God's people. O Israel, hope in the Lord. And notice as well the shift in tone from uh, verses 1 and 2 to verse 3. Verses 1 and 2 are a prayer of humility and trust. And and verse 3 is a liturgical refrain, a self-exhortation, if you will. Liturgy simply refers to the way that we worship. David is exhorting both himself and God's covenant people to place their hope in Yahweh, the living and triune God. And this liturgical rejoinder, it, it functions as both a prayer of worship and exaltation, We are liturgical beings. We are made for worship. If we aren't worshiping God, we're worshiping something else. Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories. And this is why liturgy is so important. Our worship, whether we're worshiping God or we're worshiping something else, it shapes and forms our thoughts. When we gather each Lord's Day for worship and we go through our liturgy, God is shaping and forming our affections. God has given us the elements of worship so that we might glorify him. And that's what the worship of God is really all about. It reminds us that God stands in the heavens. Our gaze constantly shifts to idols that are that are made with hands, our ambitions, our desires, our career. But true worship, the worship of God, it demands a shift from gazing at the things of this world to fixing our eyes on Christ. When we worship money, poverty will drive us to despair. When we worship safety, uncertainty will drive us to despair. 
When we worship sex, desire will drive us to despair. And this is why David is reorienting our hearts here in verse three. The worship of God centers our lives. So this liturgical refrain from David in verse three, it actually serves as a model of worship. David is preaching our everlasting hope to both himself and to the church. It is the hope of the Lord, which is our hope from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus is our hope now, and we will continue worshiping him even in heaven. Now, why does this liturgical refrain in verse three matter? Well, I think it actually uh, teaches us how we are to deal with our anxieties and our cares. If you remember earlier, I quoted from Psalm 42, verse five. The psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? This is a plea to the Lord. The psalmist is facing an existential crisis. His soul is clearly in torment. And what does he do? He preaches the gospel to himself. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now this verse in Psalm 42, verse five, it actually greatly parallels the entire movement of Psalm 131. David moves from addressing his inner thought life in verses one and two to preaching the hope of glory in verse three. And I think this is incredibly important because it gives us a realistic view of ourselves. We live in a day and age where we are told to Listen to ourselves to find your true self from within. But the biblical view is quite different. Listen to these words from Jeremiah 17, verse nine. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, our thoughts, they often deceive us because of sin. We are prone to self-deception. If we listen to every thought that pops into our head, we're gonna end up in a world of trouble. We are called to take every thought captive and this is what that looks like. This is what is modeled for us in Psalm 131 and, and Psalm 42 even. We filter our thought life through the lens of Christ. You hear that voice that comes into your head? You're not good enough. You're a failure. And we have to take that and put it at the foot of the cross. Is this true? What does Christ say about me? Is this the devil accusing me? Every thought must be subject to Christ. And this is why David moves from inner dialogue in verses one one and two to an exhortation of his eternal hope. He recognizes that his thoughts fail him, that his heart is deceitful. We are broken people in need of God's healing. And we must exhort our souls to trust in God, our only help and refuge in time of need. Now, I don't want you to hear what I'm saying and think that I am just dismissing human anxieties altogether. 
There may be times where you feel like God is not at work in your life or you don't see his presence or his care for you. You may feel distant from him even. And even when you cry out to him or you preach the gospel to yourself like we see here, you still don't get relief. We often don't know why God brings us particular trials. We, we don't fully comprehend God's ways. Now we see in part, then we shall see in full. All we know right now is that we are called to cast our cares upon him because he loves us and cares for us. And we may continue to suffer in this life, but we know that we can bring everything in prayer and supplication to God. And even if we don't experience relief in this life, this psalm is still important for us. Because if we believe in the gospel, if we truly believe what the gospel is, if we have faith like a child and trust in our heavenly father, we know that he has already prepared a place for us. And that in itself is a comfort. This life is a vapor. We are here today and gone tomorrow. But our hope, our unshakable trust is in Christ And we can have confidence that he has pardoned all our iniquities. If we put our trust in him, nothing, nothing can separate us from God's love. May this psalm be on our lips throughout our earthly pilgrimage. Would you pray with me? Lord, our hearts are not lifted up. Our eyes are not raised too high. We do not occupy ourselves with things that are too great and too marvelous for us. We ask, Lord, that you would calm and quiet our souls, that our souls would be like that of a weaned child with its mother. And Lord God, the God of Israel, we pray that we would put our hope in you from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.